Hamster Wheel Publishing. This is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. Normally on Blunt Dissection, I put a person under the spotlight, but this month I've decided to place a subject there instead. And since you can't ask a subject questions, I've invited two experts onto the show to share their stories. The people are Drs. John Dooley and Nadine Hamilton, and the subject is, of course, suicide in veterinary professionals. John and Nadine have two contrasting perspectives on this morbid issue, and together they share some personal and professional insight into the depressive state that leads to suicide and what can be done to prevent veterinary professionals from falling into this overwhelming mental chasm. Buckle up, listen in and take notes. It's not an exaggeration to say that doing so may one day save your life. Welcome to the podcast. Normally, I would say I'm excited um, when I have guests on, but perhaps that's the wrong word today. Um, Somewhat serendipitously, I'm in a time zone where I can connect to the good folks of Australia. And so it's back to the land of plenty we go for today's podcast. And the podcast, is, as regular listeners know, is about success and how it manifests in people who have done something remarkable. And today's show is really no different, except that it is. Because today we're, we're going to take a shot at talking about one of, and when I say one of, I probably mean the biggest taboo subject that exists within veterinary practice. And that's the subject of mental health, and in particular, the, the really dark side of that that is suicide. And, and I'm very conscious with the podcast that rather than blow up a picture of success and all the bluster and barnstorming that goes along with it, I really want to look at success from a lot of different angles. And so if you've been a vet for long enough, or you've worked in this industry for long enough, you will know someone, and often it's multiple people, who lost the fight that they had with the demons in their head and they took their own lives. And so today I'm privileged and humbled to be joined um, by two people I'm very excited to get on the podcast. Uh, the first is Dr. John Dooley. And John uh, is a, a, a partner, an owner in a practice um, and has been a vet for 40 years. And particularly, so that, that represents success in its own right, but that's not why John's on the show today. Um, John is on the show because he has the courage in this profession that I think many people don't have uh, in, in two ways. One, John has um, been to the dark place and, 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 and thought about suicide and pulled back from that brink. And I'm sure that on its own is an enormous mental challenge that takes a huge amount of courage. But also because, and perhaps an even greater amount of courage, that, that he is willing to talk openly about this. And so this to me is an exciting definition of success. And it's not one we would immediately think of, but success in, in being able to manage yourself from a, a really challenging place back to being uh, a person who, in my, my brief conversations with John, have been remarkably positive and I've learned an awful lot, even in a short space of time. So um, John, it's a massive pleasure and privilege to have you on. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dave, for the invitation. You are welcome. Um, now, I'm also joined by Dr. Nadine Hamilton, and Nadine is a psychologist, um, and she did her PhD on, very interesting, the well-being of veterinary professionals, which sounds like you could probably have written about six, six theses on that, Nadine, I'm, I'm willing to bet. And uh, Nadine now works within the industry to support veterinary mental health, and there's a couple of really interesting projects that she is working on right now. She's the architect of the Royal Canin-sponsored uh, non-profit community called Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet. Uh, the aim of this community is primarily to raise awareness within the general pet owning and veterinary community about the issues us vets face, and, and nurses of course, that, what the things we're dealing with and the negative impact that client behaviour can have on veterinary professionals. Um, and so it's looking to destigmatize um, the, the challenges that we face and encourage us to seek help. And she also is running a program which teaches veterinary professionals how to develop coping skills and strategies to enable us to deal with the demands of what is a challenging, challenging career. So Nadine, also a very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Well, and, and so I'm, I'm super grateful for you taking time out your, your busy schedules. So, John, I really wanted to, to start with you and 
capture a little bit more of your story in, in, in detail. And I suppose a good start point is just paint the, 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 the background to, to John Dooley's journey in, in veterinary medicine, if you wouldn't mind. Um, I can, well, I probably, the influential things go back a fair way, I suppose. I, I grew up in a, um, in a farming family. I was the oldest of four kids. My the younger of my two sisters was profoundly disabled with cerebral palsy. Um, and in consequence, as, as happens when, when families have a severely disabled child, everything swings around that, as is obviously necessary. Um, because I was showing a bit of academic promise in primary school, I was then chuffed off to boarding school in order to not have the family domestic circumstances limit me. Um, I, had a, I had a pretty good career at school in general terms. I ended up in the first 11 for cricket. I ended up uh, captain of the first 15 rugby team. I ended up school captain and I ended up ducks of the college. So really, 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 you know, scraping the barrel there, John. You're not, not, really achieving, <laughs> not really achieving much at school, right? Absolutely did, but but it was in it you know it was in a small school, a country right. school. So um, you know, that's uh, anyway that's the way it that's the way it fell into place. Right. The, the sort of the 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 biggie the biggie that came along was that after the school speech night weekend in my final year at school, at which I had to give the school captain's address to parents and do various other things. There was a weekend that was you know a pretty good weekend, and I was on a fair bit of a and I was delighted with the fact that for one of the very rare occasions my parents were able to attend at school to be there for that weekend and that was something that they'd rarely been able to do for anything during the course of my six years away. But the biggie came that, that then my, my on the way home the next day from that visit to the school, my father suffered a heart attack and died at the wheel of the car. Um, it could have been worse. My mother managed to grab the wheel and steer it between the trees as it ran off the road, but say my my, uh, my mother was in the car, obviously, as was my other sister, my aunt and a friend of mine from school going home for Stuvac prior to the HSC. Um, and that was a pretty big event and probably remains for me one of the, you know, one of the outstanding influential events in my life. Um, I, I can't remember much else about it. I have very vague memories of the funeral. So I was home for a week instead of studying in that week leading up to the HSC. Um, went back to school, did the HSC, um, don't remember any of the details with regard to the exam or anything else, went on from there, ultimately got into vet science, went to university, um, became the elected house president of my residential college at Sydney Uni in my fourth year there. The other big event in that year, that same year when I was in fourth year, was that my, my younger sister, the disabled one, Elizabeth, um, died at home during, I think, the approximate end of second term holidays in that year, died suddenly overnight in bed. So, again, I don't have a great deal of memory with regard to that. Um, been very good at blocking out noxious um, blocking out noxious stimuli, it would appear. Moved on through that, um, graduated, got a job, worked in mixed practice for three years, went locuming in the UK, came back, married, children, bought a practice, and then suddenly at age um, 38 or 39, within an extremely short space of time, had had a major breakdown and got rapidly to the point of suicide, whereby the, what I sort of, I think back on as being just the, the writhing can of worms that was my brain, um, was such a noxious sensation to have to deal with that, I was very clear about the fact that my situation was intolerable and that I would have to end my life. Um, I basically had nutted, nutted down to choice of two methods, one, in, one of which would probably have involved staff and a very unpleasant experience of them. The other one would not have involved anyone that I knew personally. Uh, but I was very lucky in that the sole little niggling thought all the time was that you cannot do this to your kids. And fortunately... Um, I didn't quite get there. Anyway, on the good side, I'd been thoroughly cracked open um, and life has just evolved from there in a very interesting way that wouldn't have possibly happened if I hadn't had that crash. So, John, if I can, if I can take you back, because that is a, it's a story that 
just as it would be impossible not to be moved by that. And just the, the, the you know, when I, when I hear you t- telling that story, um, there are four things that really jump out at me from that. Uh, number one is you suffered multiple emotional traumas. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, you've not given quite the same detail that we've had in sort of um, more private conversations. But it, what came across to me speaking to you was obviously the, the emotional trauma of having a, a you know, being a, a, a younger child and having a sister um, with cerebral palsy and the, 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 the attention being focused elsewhere. The being sent to boarding school came across from our, our speaking as something that was quite a hard decision for your family to do as well, um, to maxim- although maximizing your, um, your educational um, chances, you know, there's a, a, I'm sure there was a cost, an emotional cost in that decision as well. And then the loss of, of both your father and your sister, so multiple emotional traumas. Um, the fact that you were such a high-flying person, in, in spite of all that, adding massive value to the world around you. I mean, being a school captain, being, you know, first 11 cricket team, rugby, rugby team captain. I mean, you sound like you'd have been an absolute pain in the ass to play sport against, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I would hate. Um, I have, I have, I have, I have been accused of having white, white line fever, Dave. No kidding, no kidding. Um, adding, <laughs> adding the pressure of being a vet, and then the thing that all jumped out at me, and this has jumped out at me, conversations with other people who have pulled back from the edge, is that it came out of the blue. Now, there's multiple questions I would love to ask you in in there, and and John, feel free to say no to any of this if it gets too close to the bone. Um, but the, the, the first one was, how did you find yourself when you experienced the emotional traumas? You know, and, and, and one of the most interesting things that, or quotes that I ever heard was from a chap called Martin O'Neill, who was the, uh, he was the manager of my beloved Celtic football club. Um, and I read this quote when I was going through a very difficult time myself with, with my own um, was at the time my girlfriend and, and who is now my wife um, and, and some health issues that she developed and were, were, were very, frankly, terrifying things. Um, and, I, and, what, uh, and I took a crumb of comfort from a quote that I read from him. And the quote was, he was asked about how he, how he was coping with the life of being a football manager and, and the stresses that go with that and having a wife who was, uh, who was ill with leukemia. And he said, look, I, I don't get to have... Uh, a monopoly on on bad times everybody has to go through this stuff you know and and that just that one quote I took a crumb of comfort from that and thinking suddenly well you're not alone you're not in this on your own you're not the only person that's experiencing these things and that that gave me some comfort when you were going through the traumas that you've experienced in your life how you've, you've referred to not really processing them what what did you do how did you experience them how did you, it sounds like you compartmentalized them in the same way a, a body walls a, an abscess off with a thick fibrin capsule. And, and how did it feel like, when did that pus come leaking out later on in life? How did it manifest itself? You know, the results of the decision to push that, that pain to one side. And it sounds like it came back with some serious interest later on. Can you, can you talk me through some of the, the decision-making or the, the processes you used to try and compartmentalize and just give us a sense of how that felt. Some of it, I suspect, was more by omission than commission. I guess when my father died, it was obvious that I had a very significant amount of responsibility. You know, a mother, a disabled sibling, yep. things like that. Um, and I guess I sort of thought, well, okay, there it is. You know, the responsibilities exist. This is what I have to do. Um, so up to a point, that was sort of easy. I mean, I miss my father dreadfully. He and I got on extremely well, and, and um, I admired him and he admired me. Um, so the, the absolute is suddenly not being there was, was, was dreadfully challenging, but I think the fact that um, the responsibilities were clear and obvious, that had to be. Were you able mm. to sideline the pain by focusing on the tasks that now fell to you? 
I, I guess I'm, I guess I must have. Um, but as, as I say, you know, I don't remember going through any hugely significant process of of intellectualising it, yeah. or taking it through step by step or analysing at the time. I suspect that was beyond me, but. I do have a very distinct memory that I, and I think this is probably a salient point, of saying to my mother at age, and I think I'm sure it was after my father's death, that I had taken a conscious decision to never, never let my heart win over my head, and I think that possibly encapsulates some of the thought processes, thought processes that I'd been going to and going through, and, and I would assume therefore this means that. I was concentrating on bringing, you know, a certain amount of intellect and rationality to the situation, yeah. and consequently keeping my feelings thoroughly, uh, thoroughly locked up. Um, when 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 it came to Elizabeth's death, I think I recognised very readily the practicalities around that event, were that my mother then had way less responsibility in her life from then on, and so did I, as a consequence. And I think that probably became the determinant. But ultimately, somewhere, sometime, then um, uh, this shit had to fit the, hit the fan, I would assume. And I and I remain very glad that it did when it did, because there was there was a lot of there was a lot of life to come after the after that. So there was a lot of you know there was there was there was tinder in the field, as it were, um, from the, the emotional traumas and in, in, in growing up. Despite that, you you still flew very high. You know, and, and and remain functional by being rational, and walling that side of things off, and, and graduated as a veterinarian. Tell me, can you take us a little deeper into your life as a vet? Um, what was that like? And um, and and can you can you yeah just maybe paint the picture of life in practice for you um, in your early career? Um, presumably, you're graduating around about 24, 25 years of age, and then yeah, 23, 23. 20, 23. And, and, and how you progress in your career. Can you fl- flesh that bit of life out for us a wee bit more? Um, yes, well, a job in mixed practice suited me entirely well. I think I'm, I'm certain that I had only ever wanted to work in mixed practice. I, um, I guess I'm a person of my time and my father was a person of his time. And I guess I grew up in a, in a, in a family whereby this, this, there was an implicit thing that in those days, to be a professional person had certain things attached to it by virtue of being the professional, whether that was the family doctor, the vet or whatever else. I think I probably inadvertently imbued a fairly strong – I uh, took in a fairly strong idea that, that professional behaviour necessity involved the need for self-sacrifice, as in putting the community that you serve first. Um, now. I don't ever remember being lectured or talked to about that. I think I just took it in. Um, but I say it's a reflection of the time, and that is something that's very much changed these days, I believe, probably for the better. Um, so I'd, I'd only ever wanted really to be a farmer's vet. I ended up in mixed practice. You uh, went went into practice ownership? Um, yeah, so basically having having worked three years in mixed practice, I went to the UK locuming. Um, ended up in Zimbabwe doing a locum there in the during the last three months of the war. Um, that was in, you know a good experience, interesting, extremely interesting experience. Came back, locum did another couple of places, and then went into a practice that I bought about eighteen months later. Started being a practice owner and a business owner. And so, um, what age are you now? When you're now uh, an owner, you've taken over the mantle of ownership. Um, let me see, 1983. Does that give us about 29, 29 does it, I think? Uh, was, was your career, uh, you know, at that point, was your career happy? Was it stable? Was the business growing? Um, what, what were the, the great things and what were the challenges in life at that point? Challenge, the challenges, I guess, were simply having to be working very hard, being keen to make every post a winner, um, having then two young children. Um, and I say this um, not particularly facetiously, but um, having, having to give up rugby. Um, and the reason that I say that not facetiously is that I think it's possible that giving rugby up was up to a point one of the worst things I could have done. It sort of was clear looking back that I used to get a great deal out of that, you know, just the, the sheer contact sport, the, um, the, you know, the, the role of it as a, 
as a major distraction and things. But anyway, that that had to go with regard to risk of injury and impact upon work and needing to be at home more with two young kids and that sort of thing. But overall, um, work was rolling well. I was quite enjoying being an employer, I think. Yep. Um, or I have no memory of finding it difficult. Yep. Um, yeah, and sort of so there we were, things were rolling along ostensibly fine. And then you rumble on for another four years from, from giving up the rugby and then you, you say this, the speed of onset was extraordinary that, that you fell into this depression. Um, what, what triggered that? What events led up to that? Can you, uh, although it, it was fast, I think one of the things that I find most perturbing in my investigations and, and exploration of this subject is just how many people say they had no idea it was coming. Um, which I'm sure, and we'll, we'll bring Nadine into the conversation in a little little while, is quite a, a scary thing from a preventive point of view. Um, but John, can you give us a sense of of life leading up to the the, the, the moment where you you fell into the depression and and went down that path? What was the trigger? And can you now you, you've had a chance to reflect on it for a number of years? Um, what led to that? Um, it was, I think, essentially a very, a very minor thing. Um, and I will spare some of the details, um, and that's probably the only thing that I would, would keep to myself in this context. Um, but I think I got a sudden, had a sudden realisation that the prospect of continuing to do things the way that I was doing them forever might not sit completely comfortably with me. Um, it was, a, and this is going to sound vague and nebulous, but it was to do with the fact that working the way I was distinctly limited other possibilities and this particular thing happened and I think it just probably rocked me to my core, but I remember thinking about the what the trigger factors were and thinking, well, it's only that, you know, this is a really small thing. Why the hell am I reacting to it with such intensity? Yeah. That that sta- that staggered me. I thought, no, no, no. This this is just a completely disproportionate response yep. to this little bit of new situation. But to put it in a nut- in a nutshell, mm-hmm. I remember thinking, where the fuck am I, and how the fuck did I get here? And that was a very that was a very distinct sensation at the time. Which and and I I think I could see that that gave some indication that I'd been running on autopilot in some way, or emotional autopilot, for several years. It sounds like you and woke up from, from a dream almost. It's the sort of thing you would say if you woke up from a dream, isn't it? So I just, yeah, I, I think I just, I just copped an absolute thunderclap. But the, sud- the suddenness of it, um, I believe I cannot overstate. It, yep. you know, it, may have been, it may have been 24 hours, it may, may have been two days, but I certainly think it wasn't a week. I just suddenly went bang. And the the intensity and the speed of the reaction just of itself totally floored me. And so, did did the the reaction was the falling into de- de- depression, or did you go in that time frame from being essentially functional and okay to I see no way out of this but to end my life. Did that happen in yes. the space of days? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know what the timing on that so much was, but but my my symptoms were the most dreadful mental agitation. Yeah, it was just agitated, agitated, agitated. And as I say, you know, it felt like my head was a can of serpents just writhing away, and it was it was appalling. Um, and um, you know, I, I remember. You know the, the the edge is gone. The edge has gone from the sensation, but I still remember it acutely enough. Sure. Um, so within quite a short space of time, I think I was deciding, you know, to believe that I can endure this. Yep. But I can't remember quite how long it took to get to that point. And I say because nothing much was available in the way of resources, and because I was a, I'd been raised a fairly stiff upper lip sort of person. I just sort of thought, well, okay, carry on. And so how long did you carry on for before you sought help or, or you know, how did that reaching out for help manifest itself? 
well, I, at some stage, now, and it is like, likely to have been weeks, um, I went to the GP and said, look, I think I'd better get referred to a psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, so he did. Um, I asked to be referred to a psychiatrist some distance away so I could try to keep all this private. Uh, um, anyway, I decided after about five sessions that that, that form intervention, which wasn't in fact intervention at all, was completely useless. I mean, I had about five sessions of, of sitting there with no prompting about anything at all, just yeah. sitting there and with the, the relevant um, specialist waiting for me to raise points. And uh, as a scheme of providing help for me, that didn't work one scrap. So I gave that away and uh, sort of got on with some other things, really. But, you know, I've no doubt, Dave, that I should have been, I should have been medicated. I probably should have been hospitalised, you know, all sorts of things, I would think, thinking back. Yeah. But um, it wasn't offered. Okay. And nor did I, no, and and I probably wouldn't have asked for it anyway, right. feeling that I had too too many other responsibilities. So Nadine, this seems like a a, a good point to to bring you in. The, the experience, as I said, from speaking to others who've considered or attempted suicide, is that there do seem to be certain things that are commonalities. Is John's experience? Now you've listened to it, typical Nadine, or what's what's your take on on the way this happens? I guess um, too, and and thank you, John, for sharing that. And I'm I'm sorry to hear about the loss of your sister and your dad as well. You know, it's obviously very traumatic things to go through. And I think as I was listening to the story, and then you know, at the point where you sort of went, okay, enough is enough, and had that breakdown for want of better for want of a better word. Um, I guess some of the thoughts that came came through to me were. It's, it's sort of like opening a Pandora's box. So, you know, when there's trauma or, you know, that kind of grief, obviously like losing your dad, um, you know, was a big part of that. And then if that hasn't been resolved or like if you haven't been able to grieve effectively or appropriately or even acknowledged that grief, it's still just sort of sitting there in the in the background. So I'm probably showing my age here, but it reminds me of back in the old cartoons, you know, and the witch is out there and she's got her big black pot boiling and stewing stuff and the steam's there and she's got the flames underneath it. It's like all of these things that we don't quite want to accept or to acknowledge or to deal with for whatever reason just sort of get thrown into this pot. So we're still able to carry on with everyday life because it's just sort of sitting there in the background. It's it's brewing. Then obviously losing Elizabeth, I think probably then reinforced a lot of the grief from losing your dad as well. So it sort of brings all of that up. And again, if that was too painful, that might have been put to the side. I know when you were talking about not really processing or not having um, many recollections of sort of where you were at at that time or sort of how everything was going on for you, that again, that could have just been sat there in the pot um, and just brewing along. Then if you add in the stressors and the pressure of working in a vet practice, um, which I think everyone's well aware is a a very stressful um, occupation and position to be in, once that had built up to such a point where you're like, I cannot do this anymore, you know, because during that journey, it might have been, oh, you know, I don't know how to do this or I'm not sure how I'll manage that and I've got this patient or client that wants to come in and now I've got this one. So all the demands of being a vet that just sort of creep up, but along the way they might have also just been pushed off to one side in that pot until such a point as it's like this pot is now full and it cannot handle anymore. It's going to boil over. If you try and put one more thing in there, it's going to just boil over and then everything comes out. Um, And I see that quite a lot, um, particularly with depressed people, with suicidal people. It's like this is all just too much. And I think bearing in mind, you know, the suicidal ideation is a symptom of depression. And so for some people who are in that headspace, when they're that depressed, and I I think – and that was where I think some of those expletives came in, <laughs> John, um, you know, with how did you get there, you know, how did this happen? And it seems like it's crept up overnight, but it can also be that things haven't been dealt with, so they've just been pushed to the side, pushed to the side, and because they haven't been sort of at boiling point yet, they haven't had a major impact until all of a sudden everything comes up. And so when when someone is in that place and they're feeling depressed and particularly, you know, with severe depression, 
it can be, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this situation? So, you know, one option is, yep, I could go and see my GP. I could get referred to a psychiatrist, um, as you did, John, or I could see a psychologist. I could talk to my coworkers. I could kill myself. I could just keep going. It's like, oh, hang on a minute. And then all of a sudden that, that thought there is like, wow, if I did kill myself, then I wouldn't have to deal with this pain anymore. I wouldn't have to deal with the dramas and the financial pressures and dealing with all these different uh, difficult customers that I've got. And so it, the thought then, the seed is planted. And for someone who isn't thinking rationally, which is quite often the case um, for a lot of people when they are that depressed, it seems like the ultimate option. Um, but unfortunately, you know, obviously it's not an option that we want to <laughs> recommend and put forward. But what can happen is they're like, yes, that's the answer to my prayers. That will take all this pain away. And then once that pain's gone, then I'll be able to come back and continue living my life as normal. But without, again, the rational mind would say, well, hang on, if you're successful with your suicide attempt, there is no coming back. It's final. It's done. It's dusted. Yep. Um, and that's where, again, you know, the rational-minded person would go, yeah, suicide's an option, but, hey, I'm not going to do that. You know, that's not a path I want to go for because I have got a family or, what, you know, I don't want my kids to grow up without a parent or I don't want to um, give the impression to my colleagues or my family or my friends that this is the way to deal with things and this is the way out. But for someone in that place and in that big black hole where you just can't see a way out of it, it is a very attractive option. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure if that answered your question. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's a fascinating insight. And so what's coming across to me, and please, either of you, feel free to jump in and shoot anything that I would say down in flames or chip in to answer any questions that I have. Um, but the, the, the question that comes out in my, my head from this is, so how... Is there, is there something in, inherent in veterinary surgeons? Because everybody's got their stuff to deal with. Like, none of our lives are perfect. But what is it about veterinary surgeons that makes us... And actually, let me go back to a question just before this. Are the statistics... Because we, we hear the statistics over and over and over again. And I sometimes think, well, where do these stats come from? So, Nadine, maybe this one's for you. Are the statistics of veterinarians being top of the list of those most likely to commit suicide true and accurate you know we hear this yep. statistic of four times the, the national average in, yep. in professionals so so are they true is the needle moving or like is this a consistent thing and and why part b is why is this happening why are we more susceptible as a group to this yep. than others yep. And I guess to sort of answer that, and obviously this is something that I, I looked at in my research and tried to get into the headspace of a vet and why is it so hard to speak up? Why is it so hard to ask for help? Without the obvious, you know, human nature that we don't want to have to accept that we need to ask for help. You know, there's a little bit of pride involved there. And as um, high flyers, I guess that's even more so. Like we're the yes. fixers. We're the ones who always were top of the class. So you don't want exactly. to seem weak, right? Yes, exactly my point. And it's the same, I think, for the bulk of people in helping professionals and uh, helping professions where we're so used to people coming to us to solve their problems, to have the answers, particularly, you know, for um, veterinary professionals where you're dealing with so many different species of animal. It's not like a human who can come in and say, oh, I've got a sore throat today or, you know, my little finger hurts. You're, you're having to diagnose and work with things that, and the animal can't tell you what's wrong. Certainly, yes, the symptoms you could go, this might be consistent with this or that could be consistent with that. Right. But you've sort of got to be mind readers <laughs> as well. <laughs> but it, it taps back into the expectations. So expectations that I, I suppose vets place on themselves that I should be able to deal with this. I, I should be able to handle everything. I have to always be in control. I have to have all the answers and I must do this and I must do that. Um, the expectations, I guess, from clients that, well, you, you should have to fix everything. You know, you're the miracle worker. You need to just fix it. And again, because you're so used to being the helper, it's very difficult to take that step back and go, oh my gosh, I'm actually the one now that needs help. So there's a lot of pride there. And I think somebody um, commented to me recently, there's, there can also be the perception that 
okay, oh, look, I'm just having a bad week. It'll be okay next week, you know, and so it gets brushed under the table without being acknowledged. And that's sort of what I mean about that avoidance. You know, everything just goes and sits in this big black pot, um, you know, wherever you want to put it, it just sits to the side and it it doesn't take it away. It's still going to be there no matter what, but it's sat there and it's avoidance, avoidance, avoidance until such a point as it then builds and builds and builds and it's like I can't run from this anymore and it seems magnified because you, you sort of give it that power by avoiding it rather than yep. acknowledging it and addressing it. So it's just builds up and builds up, you know, and then on top of everything else and then, yeah, before you know it, it's like, wow, how did I get to this place? And sometimes I think too, it's is it the nature of the job? Is it actually the job or has somebody got some personal circumstances going on? And then, you know, the, the nature of the job just exacerbates that as well. But again, because of the occupations, like here we go, there's another vet that suicided, but was it the job that caused it or was it their personal circumstances? So the research has consistently shown you're around one in four, um, so sorry, vets four times more likely than the general population, twice as likely as other health professionals to suicide. Uh, and I think it equates to roughly one every 12 weeks who's committing suicide at the moment. That's sort of within Australia with our stats. The, the rates of it, um, it is quite hard to track because different states and territories in a, within Australia, I'm talking, um, on death certificates, some of them may be ruled accidental death. You know, if someone has committed suicide by car accident or, you know, other means, it could be ruled accidental. And not all um, death certificates will actually have the occupation of the person who's died. So we can't sort of track and say, oh, gosh, you know, in Queensland in particular, there were, you know, 12, 12 vets who committed suicide because we don't know their occupation. And again, some may be ruled accidental when they were, in fact, suicide. So, again, that's um, – it's a sort of – I think that it's it's sort of the um, – I'm not sure when they're doing the stats exactly where that is – those um, stats are coming from, what resources that they're referring to because, again, not all, not all of the states um, in, in Australia anyway are recording those things. I think they're going on your reported – um, suicides and, and documenting it that way. Nadine, let me ask you a question about the nature of the job um, mm -hmm. as, as we talk about that then. So is it the nature of fixing, finding disease as such that's the hard part or is it the nature of managing the client's expectations alongside that or independent yeah. to that? What, what's the most well, yeah, from my own research. So I reviewed, like did literature review of, you know, the, the research that had already been done um, around the world. And I guess I, I sort of looked at that and went, okay, we know this is an issue and I don't just want to replicate research that's already being done, but I sort of want to take it one step further. So one of the first stages of that was I had one-on-one -on -one interviews with vets um, some of them were face-to-face, -face, some of them were over the phone just because of location. So I basically had a, a series of questions based on what the research had suggested, which primarily was around having to euthanise animals was the big thing. Yeah. So that was sort of where I went in, okay, well, what is it about performing euthanasia that makes the job so stressful? You know, that was sort of my, my initial hypothesis. But then once I started interviewing the vets, the general consensus was, yeah, absolutely, that is a really stressful part of the job, but it's certainly not the only one. So what sort of came out um, in my research, which is some of it is quite common across other research that has been done, um, but dealing with difficult clients. Yep. So they're the, the customers that they don't want to pay or that's too expensive, why should I have to pay that? Why can't I just do this instead? Um or arguing the point, well, hang on, you fixed um, this problem 10 years ago and now it's back again. What's going on? You know, those sorts of things. Yep. Um, compassion fatigue was huge. Um, again, when you, you know, you're trying to be compassionate, you're thinking of the animal, but you're also dealing with the owner. You might have your own staff in the room, particularly if it is, you know, for euthanasia or something traumatic um, that, that brings up a lot of emotion. Um, financial pressures as well. So particularly for those who are running their own practice and maintaining the practice. 
and client expectations. Um, so again, and and to some point, the vet's own expectation on themselves, but definitely client expectations right. is another. They were are business owners more, or practice owners, I should say, more, uh, are there a greater proportion or is there no statistical significance in the, the, the work status or the, 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 you know, the job role within practice uh, yep. and the attendant pressure? Like, do I'm, I'm not sure of that. Yeah, that's not something that I personally researched okay. and didn't come across anything to suggest that. Now, I wanted to move on to, so we, you know, we sort of covered and thank you both for, for your in, input so far and the, the, the how does this happen and and um and i think what you know a positive way to to move forward with this conversation is and the thing that i've written down in my notepads been talking that keeps coming up is dealing with stuff and not yes. sidelining it yes so i probably start with you nadine and what practically can we do to deal with traumatic things as they're happening? And there's two kinds of traumas that seem to be jumping mm-hmm. out here. One is the really big life-shaping traumas that you know just have, have, have big impacts on all of us. Um, and then there's the day-to-day, I hesitate to use the word mundane, but the more routine, commonplace things that can still be real, really nigglesome and without without you know without being able to be resilient to to little setbacks that happen again and again and again can then push us over the edge Mm. so how do we deal with both of those things and then i'll come on to you john because you you've got sounds like you've got some really fantastic ways of of maintaining your um, emotional and 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 mental well-being now so nadine we'll we'll, we'll keep on with you for a second then we'll move on to john yeah sure so what I actually did, as, as again, you know, tried and tested in the research to see whether I was onto something or not <laughs> with this. So, um, I ha- I already had a, a bit of a well-being program um, that I used to use in my practice, and so I wanted to adapt that to be more suited to you know life as a veterinarian, basically. So I looked at all the other aspects or all the aspects that I thought made up well-being aside from the nutritional aspect which is um, a bit of an issue with nutrition because people not necessarily getting lunch breaks or eating healthily Um, and also from an exercise perspective because I'm not qualified in that regard so I was looking at it from a psychological perspective so um, a number of things that that we did and I actually taught people how to, to do these things so some of the smaller things or I say sort of smaller because they're they're quicker and easier to implement were um, having really good stress management strategies to you know to deal with your stress before it gets too far so being proactive with your stress management rather than reactive with your stress management so what sort of strategies are you talking about there yeah so again noticing your stressors you know what's going to stress you out so if you know that you have to go into your practice and you've got 10 surgeries to get done um and maybe surgery is not your strong point or you're like oh my gosh I've, I've got to get through all of this and i don't know how i'm going to do it allowing for the fact that okay well i know today i'm probably going to be feeling a little bit stressed and it's because of this okay working out how do I deal with that effectively rather than sort of going, oh, my goodness, I've got to go in, I've got 10 surgeries, how am I going to cope and what if someone rings in sick and and then sort of panicking and, again, being reactive to it, so preparing in advance but recognising your symptoms. You know, if you notice your stomach's churning and you're becoming more irritable than normal and you're having palpitations and those sorts of things, could be an indication that there is some stress or anxiety going on there. So recognising how do I feel when I'm stressed or anxious or depressed and how do I actually do something proactive about it rather than just ignoring it and hoping it'll go away. So time management, you know, was another Thing, you know, developing some really good time management strategies so that you can, where possible, and I know emergencies happen, um, you know, but really trying to be proactive with your time. And it may be that instead of every time a customer rings and wants to talk to you, and so you're interrupting your consults, it might be that you say, okay, between this time and this time is when I'll return all the phone calls. So I can continue consulting without interruption unless it's an absolute emergency. Again, you know, it's just trying to be a little bit more. Um, structured and organised with your time, again, where possible. Uh, We looked at 
um, resiliency, you know, resiliency is probably at the core um, of coping, you know, with these sorts of jobs and just that recognising that bad things are still going to happen. It doesn't, just because you're resilient, it doesn't mean that traumatic things or hard things aren't going to affect you. It just means that you're able to cope with them more effectively and be able to go, oh my gosh, you know, okay, well, I'll dust myself off and off and here I go again, you know, going back for the the next round, basically, rather than it just completely defeating you and going, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm going to cope. This is one of those words that's very, very mm-hmm. buzzword. Um, yes. It's a hot word at the moment. Yep. And, and it's, but it's also one of these um, words that is very, very poorly defined mm-hmm. and, and bandied around a lot. And, and resilience is something you can very much, like it's something you work on. It's like a muscle, isn't it? It's not just something like, you know, people born super resilient. Yes. There are strategies and tactics you can deploy yes. to improve your resilience. What practically can people do? And I, I'm, I'm conscious of both your time here, so I don't, I don't want to take yep. up hours of your time, but give me the, what are the top four resilience boosting activities people's, people oh, can gosh, work now, on? <laughs> now you're going to put me on the spot. I've got these all <laughs> down in a handout and I don't have that handout with me. Um, there is actually, I'm going to really cheat here. There is a book, and gosh, now the author's name escapes me. I actually referred to it because I, I used it in my research. Um, and I, I can let you know anyway. I can always flick you an email on the name of the book there for a resource. Ping me in but it yeah, talks, and I'll put it in the show notes for the for the Yeah, for the um, but podcast. there's actually the top 10 um, strategies for developing resiliency. Yep. So there are, are 10 sort of strategies there which have come from research I would say probably one of the biggest things relates back to positive psychology, which yep. is something I'm really passionate about. I guess sort of just tapping into those things, having really good relaxation strategies, so long as, and I emphasise, so long as they're safe and they're legal activities. That's my only stipulation with people relaxing. So it doesn't matter how you choose to relax. Again, so long as it's safe and it's legal, you know, someone might say, oh, I, you know, I love to rela- relax by getting high on drugs or whatever. It's like, okay, I'm not going to advocate for that. But some people find it relaxing to go for a jog, go surfing, go gardening, reading a book, yeah. meditating, you know, whatever it is that you can do that helps you to relax. Um, developing effective communication skills uh, is huge and assertiveness skills. So you can learn how to speak up and say no or communicate more effectively again in an assertive respectful manner so that you're not walked over all the time because again those expectations are well you're a vet you love animals so just fix my animal it's nine o'clock at night you're about ready to go home but surely you can just fix this because you love animals right you know you'll do it for nothing because I can't afford to pay you Um, so having those communication skills um, again I, I sort of talk about the positive psychology but probably the two biggest strategies that I used in my course were learning some kind of coping strategy and again I'll say psychological intervention that is going to be effective so my sort of method of choice is called acceptance and commitment therapy and it really sums up I think nicely what we've been talking around here with the avoidance and those sorts of things it utilizes mindfulness so that we're aware of the here and now we're in the moment what's going on for us right now so it teaches us how to accept the things that we can't change accept the things that are outside of our control um, which is pretty much anything except our own behavior is outside of our control right but then committing to take action in line with our values so it's, it, it teaches you the techniques, and this is what I did with my research. I taught the vets the techniques, how to cope with these irrational thoughts that would come up, how to um, cope with the feelings that they were having in a healthy and more effective way so that they could deal with the demands of everyday life, whether it's on the job or whether it's stuff going on at home, being able to deal with that effectively. That reminds me of the, uh, the stoic, you know, that stoic wisdom, you know, God grant me the the serenity to yes. accept that which I cannot change, the, the courage yes, to change that which I can, and absolutely. wisdom to know one from the other. Absolutely. Um, John, and hurry, I think, is the, isn't the end of it, and hurry. Right. And, <laughs> the patience and hurry. <laughs> exactly. Now, J- John, um, you have um, you, you have mentioned mindfulness there, and I know that, that that's yeah. something that, that you um, utilise, but 
but can you um, give us a, a sense of your mental management program? I don't know if that's the right right way to describe it, John. Would that be would that be fair? Probably overstates the uh, formality <laughs> of it. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm a reasonably reasonably non-structured sort of person. Um, Nadine covered a lot of the ground there. Um, time management, particularly. Um, the thing about the veterinary profession, I think, in the work we do is that it is just so multifactorial. You've got to bring so many different skills to it. And I, and I think for a lot of it comes back to just the sheer volume of it yeah. for many of us. You know, I mean, you could, you, could, you could cope with half of it standing on your ear. Um, you could cope with three quarters of it much of the time, but cumulatively, probably, across a working lifetime, I think for some of it, it's just just the sheer bloody amount of it, and the and the variety and the complexity of it, and all the other different things you've got to deal with. I think that's what adds to it. Um, to answer the question more specifically, for me, I think that a couple of things happened. The fact that I learnt meditation pretty early on has been a lifesaver for me. I really do think that, from my own perspective, meditation has done things for me that I consider quite one wondrous. I'm sure it's made me a, a way better clinician by virtue of improving my powers of concentration, but perhaps even more so, it has factored into being able to unconsciously at times pick up on stuff or prompt me to go asking the questions of clients that I really do need to know to be an effective clinician for their animal and for themselves. And I think I probably wouldn't have had that capacity or wisdom sometimes to reach that point where I can be better for clients because of paying sufficient attention to to their their needs in the equation. And I I think meditation has assisted in that very much. For me, I guess I learnt, I I put a lot of effort, I guess, philosophically into examining my situation um, to say, okay, well, out of this, you know, I've been hit on the head with a few biggies here. What, what are the take-home messages that I need to keep on learning? What is the universe hitting me over the bloody head with here that I'm being too thick to understand? How do I improve that? And how do I just work towards ideally living what will ultimately stand scrutiny, particularly from myself, as having been just leading a good life? That, I think, has been an important driver for me because of the fact, I think, Personality-wise, and perhaps inherently, but also arising out of much of my experience, I still manage to see myself in in something of a of a protector role, particularly for younger people within the profession. It's made me quite a good trainer of new graduates and those sorts of things. I'm not convinced yet that I've that I'm completely on top of how to look after myself properly. I perhaps still work too hard, but of more recent times, taking up one of Nadine's points. I have been saying to people at various times in the in the in the workplace, no, no, no. What we've what we're being asked of here is completely unreasonable. Tell Mrs. So and So that that's how things, uh, and tell her nicely and clearly and sympathetically and all that. That that is how things are right now. In terms of what we can do this minute and what we can't, tell her I've got these three things on next, and the best I can do so that I can bring full concentration to conversation with her I absolutely have to knock these other things over first so you know that's that's around time management and I guess I'm perhaps a bit shamefaced to say it's taken all these years for me to really start thinking no 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 it's unreasonable for me to have that pressure put on me and here's how I'm going to respond to it and I think that's a big that's a biggie not being the not being the dedicated bugger all the time who continues to have to try to solve every problem for everybody in the next couple of minutes rather than thinking, no, no, what's reasonable here? You know, and to, to, try, to try, try to bring a more objective eye to some of those situations and stop trying to be so helpful all of the time. Or, or who else That's could it. answer the question for you? Yes, yes, indeed. So flick, flick it. Say, okay, no, hang on, so-and-so looks as if they're not occupied at the minute. See, see what could be done. So yeah. things to do with effective time management that way. But I think a lot of it within the veterinary profession is just the, the sheer volume of stuff and the relatively multifactorial nature of it because you've got to be a master of so many skills. Now, if in fact, I think as business owners, if in fact you're coupling that with a suboptimal income for whatever reason, then I think that certainly probably adds a, a very big stress. But I also think somewhere along, along the line, philosophically, if it looks like you're going to need to spend the rest of your life 
being Sisyphus and rolling the rock uphill, well then, so be it. You, you adapt to it. And part of the adaptation, I think, for me is, and I think, again, this has probably come out of meditation, is that capacity to, to see the tiny detail in everything. You know, I, I, never enjoyed, I never enjoyed damaging earthworms with a spade, but I enjoy it even less now. Um, I try not to walk on ants. Now, this, again, sounds like obsessive behaviour, and I guess it might be. But my point here is that, again, for me, out of meditation has come for an appreciation of the fact that everything is made up of exquisite detail. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether it's a relationship with somebody or the surgical process that you're doing. And, and, th- and this, this line of logic probably relates fairly well to surgery. When, when you're closing an abdomen, you're not just closing an abdomen, you are sequentially placing one suture after another. Now, each of those sutures needs the correct amount of concentration put on it, all of that sort of thing. And I think you can apply that analogy to many other things in life. It's, it's a helpful consideration when you're explaining something to a final year student or a new grad because most of them seem to then understand that when you're, when you're describing that detail to them and the fact that encouraging them to develop an understanding of that detail is a useful thing, many of them appear to be able to take that on board as a useful bit of advice. Well, yeah. I think what you're doing there is you're, you're bringing mindfulness to your everyday activity. That is, that is certainly what it is. And out of this, the fact that one of um, um, oh, a, a person well involved in training in the veterinary profession for whom I have a great deal of regard is Ilana Mendels. Um, I employed Ilana as a new grad and I got back in touch with her just lately to say, um, can you tell me some of the things, if you can remember them, that you might have taken away from your 14 or 18 months with me that you found useful? things that I either said or alluded to. And amongst those, she said, was, she said, it wasn't so much what you said, but the encouragement was always there when, when going for a drive out to do a call, farm call or horse job or whatever else, to be prepared to pull up for somewhere for five minutes on the way back and just admire the scenery and, and take it in. And I think, oh, yep, okay, well, yes, you probably did get that idea because that, that is something that I pay a bit of attention to. And I think to be able to draw pleasure, satisfaction, encouragement, consolation, any of those sorts of things from the other peripheral stuff that's going on in your day is a real biggie. I think it's got to come out of Nadine's point about self-awareness is a big one. I mean, you can't put an old head on young shoulders, but encouraging people to be as aware of can be of how they were feeling in any given context is really important because if you've got that bit of self-awareness, you're then in a position where you're right, okay, well, I can see how I feel. Therefore, I need to respond rather than simply not being aware and reacting. And I think that's a very important uh, consideration. Yeah. But to be able to see, for me, I guess, uh, look, I'm a, I'm a bit of a smart ass with words sometimes. My, brain, my brain's not bad from the point of view of repartee. But to be able to bring humour, and I mean sort of nice humour, not, not smart ass. Um, you know, inappropriate humour in difficult, in you know, in in serious situations. But to be able to view humour, to use it, to not take oneself seriously, to be prepared to acknowledge that maybe in certain circumstances, clinically especially, you know that you could do everything in the wide world for this patient. You could end up referring it. You can do all sorts of things. But everything considered, you think righto. Well, I need to set my sights a little bit lower. And to be able to accept the fact that if all the client can do is shampoo the patient with a well-chosen, supplied by you, shampoo twice a week and not, not, not have it on antibiotics twice a day for two months because that's what it's infected skin requires and all those sorts of things. If all you can do or get the client to do is to do the shampooing thoroughly, well, you have within the constraints based upon you done the best that you can do for that patient. And for that client, and they'll probably think you're fantastic. And even though you th- you could have done all these other things, be satisfied with and the best you can in the circumstances. And I think that's an important thing for young young clinicians to learn is to accept that that's all it might be, and to be encouraged by what they've been able to achieve in that circumstance. Powerful stuff, John. Thank you very much. And I know. You've been involved in a project with Anne Fawcett and the CVE in Sydney. You're not far off publishing 
uh, are being published in a book called The Mental Health Cookbook. So Yeah, what it actually is, and so my involvement is only as a contributor. So yeah. Anne's doing all the work um, and editing with, um, with a co-editor. And the CVE has undertaken, I think, to publish this. So <coughs> my contribution has not been a recipe, but it in, in essence has been providing my biography. Some of the ingredients. For, for, for sure. anyone who cares to take something from it. And so it's, it's, I think the title is going to be Not, not a Cookbook. And there is a Facebook page um, that's been running for a while. So that's out there. But I expect that that'll be, that'll be a, major, a major resource for the profession. Fantastic. And Nadine, um, any parting thoughts and where can people get in touch with you to learn more about your work? I think probably to, to summarise, it's to speak up, don't suffer in silence and we need to reduce the stigma and, you know, by raising awareness by people coming out and talking about it, particularly like John has done today, sharing his story the more of us that are saying, hey, it is okay, you don't have to go through this alone and there is lots of support available to you, then we'll start reducing that stigma, which is sort of part of my journey and what I'm really passionate, you know, about addressing that. So my my website, they're the www.positivepsychsolutions.com.au. I've got details of the the program, I guess details about me and a little bit about the research that I did. Um, I guess from the stigma perspective, as you mentioned before in the introduction, the Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet campaign, which is sort of twofold, but primarily around raising awareness within the community of what is actually going on for our vets and vet nurses as well, and what they can do, how they can play a part in that to help alleviate some of the pressures. Um, Because the bulk of the people that I speak to, unless they're in the industry, they have no idea, um, you know, really, vets, why? You get to play with puppies and kittens all day, uh, you know, seems to be the common thing. Why would they be stressed? So it's really raising that awareness so that the more we get it out there, the more we talk about it and make it okay to seek help, then that's when, you know, hypothetically, then we should start seeing some positive change, you know. And I am starting to see there's more and more people becoming aware of it, more and more people contact me on a private basis to say, hey, this is what's going on here, how do we do this? So there is starting to be a positive shift now, which is brilliant, but we've just got to keep up that momentum and get the changes. So, yeah, speaking up and we need to reduce the stigma. Um, And, you know, I think I'm not sure if it was sort of along the lines of what John said earlier, you know, if somebody's in a in a job and they're not happy but they feel they have to stay in that job again from you know expectations having that and this um came from a discussion i had with brian mccurlane um how he said you know i give people permission to leave that job if you're not happy being a vet leave do something else you know and it's about having that discussion saying it's okay if if this isn't the career for you then why make yourself miserable and doing it, you know, focus on something else. So, and I guess that's sort of, you know, part of the the stuff that I do with, with the coaching and the support for vets is helping them, I guess, to see that point in them in the right direction and helping on that journey. If I could just add in, this is going to be a, a mixed metaphor, but resilience is a double-edged sword. Resilience has obviously very positive aspects, but I think also resilience can be a ball and chain thing is being too resilient i think that factors into again is what you were saying nadine about thinking all right well if it's not suitable um make a change so i would just put that in resilience has you know has positive and negative benefits yep and i think Mm. you really tapped on at something there at a um conference i presented at a few weeks ago one of the vets actually said tapping into that she said well yeah, I think there's also that fine line and, again, coming down to expectations or your own perception of what's the difference between, yeah, being resilient and versus sucking it up, um, in, in her words, not mine. Yes, sucking yeah, it yeah, up. yeah. You know, well, okay, how much of this is sort of like, okay, well, this is sort of expected, but then is, is some of it that, well, this isn't expected. You shouldn't have to deal with this. And so... The expectation is you're going to suck it up or, you know, whether that's a a self-expectation or not where, well, I should be able to deal with this versus, hang on, this is outside of what I should be expected to deal with and that's where I need to draw on these other, you know, strengths, whether they're resilience, coping skills, you know, or what what else is coming into it. 
Yes, and oh. I think I, I think in the new, in the new graduate situation, I think that adds another le- layer of complexity mm. because as a new grad, when you're particularly coming to terms with hell's bells, I've got all this to do. How reasonable is it? Am I just being weak? Am I being too slow to become the rapid operator that I need to be? All those yes. things. Is this just too bloody hard? I think that's yep. an extra uh, context in which that's really important, and that particularly is a situation that I myself am interested in. Um, is new graduates finding their feet in practice and and being yes. helped helped with coming to an understanding of yep you're going along fine or no the circumstances around you are imposing too much upon you um, yes and I think that sort of speaks to you know if you feel that you're not coping then you need to speak up you know and talk to somebody about it whether it's a confidential discussion with your GP someone you trust a, you know a trusted colleague rather than suffering and and going on and, you know, doing that if, if you're not feeling that you're coping okay, you know, and that it's going to improve and, you know, if you're starting to feel stressed or anxious or depressed and those symptoms aren't reducing, then that was that would be where I'd say regardless of what situation you're in, that's when you need to start speaking up and, and doing something more and being more proactive and treating it. You know, it is very treatable, but you have to go and seek the treatment in order to receive the treatment. So sage words um john nadine i'm so grateful for your time it's been such an education speaking to you and a privilege and thank you both for the contribution to the subject and and the work that you do um i wish you both the very best and i hope our paths cross again in the future absolutely thank thank you dave and thank you for the opportunity to make a contribution very welcome so before you pop off, just me again. Listen, if you got some value out of that, if you thought it was a good podcast, if you find yourself inspired or going to make changes because of what you listen to, please pop over to the iTunes website and leave me some feedback. It's very easy to do. Just leave a star rating. One star is okay. Five stars is way, way better. Uh, so pop onto iTunes and do that. And whilst you're online, don't forget to follow me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Dr. Dave Nickel. You spell the nickel N-I-C-O-L. So until next time in Blunt Dissection, be safe, be well, and keep on rocking.